Have you ever been swimming in a lake when something brushed past your legs underwater? Something big? But you tell yourself, I'm in a lake. What's the worst thing that could be in a lake? And then you're sure you saw a shadow of something swim by, and you start to really wonder, are there sharks in lakes? And how far is the dock? And couldn't I have been content to just read a book on the shore? And there's that shadow again. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who is generally terrified of the water, which has proven smart so far because I have 100% never been eaten by a mythical water creature. Today, I'll tell you two stories of such creatures who didn't let others off so easily. In the mid-6th century, which was a really, really long time ago, just to be clear, an Irish priest named Columba was cavorting around Scotland, converting the heathens of the land by showing them how cool his god was. Columba was canonized after his death for introducing Christianity to Scotland, becoming Saint Columba. So, the pre-saintized Columba was in the town of Inverness. He came upon a riverbank where locals were burying a small child. The locals told Columba the boy had been swimming in the river when a water monster bit him, and then apparently just left him for dead. Columba announced that one of his buddies would swim across the river and bring him a boat that was docked on the opposite shore. The story goes that his buddy threw off his clothes but left on his underwear, which, thank God, am I right? It's very important that we know this guy wasn't naked naked. No one saw his junk. Anyway. The guy dove into the river and was very soon confronted with the same water monster that had bitten the child. But yay, did St. Columba hold up his holy hand and make the sign of the cross. And he spake unto the beast, Think not to go further, nor touch thou the man. Quick, go back. And lo, did the beast retreat as though pulled by cords, back to the murky depths from which he did come. And the heathens were like, praise be to Jesus, and they became Christians. Columba was basically the P.T. Barnum of Christianity. The river where this took place is called the River Ness, which feeds directly into Loch Ness, home to none other than the Loch Ness Monster. The modern-day fascination with Old Nessie started in 1933 when Aldi McKay and her husband were driving along Loch Ness, and we all know that Loch is Scottish for lake, right? So, they were driving along the loch when, less than a mile out in the water, Aldi McKay reported seeing a tremendous upheaval on the loch, which previously had been as calm as a proverbial mill pond. That was my Scottish accent. McKay said she saw what she thought looked like the body of some huge creature resembling a whale, rolling and diving, churning the water into a bubbling foam. The creature was large enough that when it took its final dive under the water, it sent out huge waves. McKay and her husband stayed on the road for half an hour, waiting to see if they would spot whatever it was again, but in that time, it never resurfaced. The only paper that ran a story about the McKay's strange encounter was the Inverness Courier. Other than that, no one seemed very interested. 
Less than three months later, married couple Mr. and Mrs. Spicer were driving south along Loch Ness when they claimed to have seen a huge prehistoric creature cross the road in front of them, headed toward the lake. According to an interview the Spicers gave to Rupert Gould, who wrote the first book about the Loch Ness Monster, the creature had a long neck and a low, thick body, about four or five feet high. Mr. Spicer said he couldn't see legs or a tail, but he did see something flopping up and down, which he later thought was a tail, curled around toward the front of the animal. The couple said they couldn't tell if the creature entered the water because their view was obstructed and they couldn't hear anything over the sound of their engine. The author, Gould, however, claimed to have been watching the lake the same day the Spicers say they witnessed this thing cross the road, and he confirmed that the water was particularly choppy and noisy at roughly the location the Spicers claimed they saw the animal. Gould went into the interview skeptical, but based on their description and a drawing Mr. Spicer made, he came out assured that the Spicers were telling the truth and had in fact seen the Loch Ness Monster. Apparently I'm less starry-eyed than Gould, because while pretty much everything in that story sounds plausible-ish, the one giant hole, I think, is that the animal didn't react at all to the Spicer's car. Have you ever experienced an animal crossing the road in front of you? If they haven't frozen in the middle of the road, seemingly staring down their impending doom with some kind of hypnotized fascination, a la the proverbial deer in the headlights, they, for some insane reason, wait until the last possible moment and make a mad dash for Jesus right in front of your tires. It's like they thought, it's now or never, and you see them take off in front of you and you yell, couldn't you wait five seconds? But it's too late. You keep driving, trying not to check your rearview mirror for the carnage you've left behind, thinking about the single squirrel parent in their tree somewhere with five mouths to feed, waiting for their partner who will never come back. Maybe a 20-foot, two-ton animal, I'm guessing, can't exactly sprint across the road, but you would think it would maybe stop and look at the loud thing speeding toward it up the road? If it is slow-moving in general, I would imagine it would have at least glanced at the car to assess its own safety, you know? If the Spicers couldn't hear a splash over their engine, that is a loud fucking engine. Unless the Loch Ness Monster is deaf and has some kind of weird tunnel vision, it seems fishy to me that the Spicers never say she looked at them. Now, of course, it's likely that Mr. and Mrs. Spicer had read the account in the local paper of Aldi McKay and her husband's alleged sighting a few months earlier. Maybe they wanted to be featured in the Inverness Courier, too, and so they concocted this sighting. The beast in Loch Ness was already a local legend, whether or not people knew its origins. It's likely that anyone in that part of Scotland knew about a mythical beast that supposedly lived in Loch Ness. It was probably used to warn children not to swim out too far. An aquatic boogeyman. In fact, even before Columba was there to save people from water demons, the local Scottish tribes of the Highlands had carved a very strange-looking animal into stone that looked sort of like an elephant with the head of a seahorse. Apparently, all the other animal stone carvings look like recognizable animals, but this one is... weird. So it would seem that even the ancient Scots believed in some kind of strange creature in their parts long before St. Columba and his Jesus magic. 
So maybe the tale of the weird elephant-like creature had permeated the culture and morphed. Whatever the case, these two sightings from 1933 gave us the image of the Loch Ness Monster we know today. She looks like a brontosaurus with flippers. As 1933 went on, the papers began to pick up on the Loch Ness Monster mania, and reporting increased. Fanned on by these news reports, the London Daily Mail hired a big game hunter who also happened to be an actor and a filmmaker, I guess millennials didn't invent the side hustle, to track and capture the monster of Loch Ness. His name was Marmaduke Wetherill. Marmaduke Wetherill. It took Marmaduke less than four days to find footprints of the elusive creature. He made a big show of making plaster casts of the tracks and had them sent to the Natural History Museum in London. In under a month, the museum came back with their official findings. The tracks were made by a hippo. A hippo? I hear you cry. I didn't know there were hippos in Scotland. The museum elaborated that the tracks were made by... One hippo foot. One hippo foot? I didn't know there were one-legged hippos in Scotland. The museum elaborated further that the tracks were likely made by, wait for it, an umbrella stand or ashtray made from a hippo foot. Let's have a quick drink, shall we? Could you imagine seeing a beautiful, majestic creature in the wild, an elephant or a hippo, say, and thinking, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to murder that beautiful animal and turn its feet into an ashtray. Now, either Marmaduke wasn't in on it and someone else made the fake tracks and he genuinely thought they were Loch Ness monster tracks and confidently sent them off to London like, (laughs) watch this, everyone. Or... Marmaduke himself grabbed his hippo foot accessory and stamped it into the road at Loch Ness and sent the plaster cast off to London like, (laughs) watch this, everyone. Either way, he couldn't have been a very competent big game hunter. Surely most big game hunters know that big game animals have both left and right feet, generally speaking. And then, of course, there are the photos. Just because no one has ever caught the actual beast itself doesn't mean they haven't caught it on film. But are there more to those photos than meets the eye? When people seriously debate the existence of the monster of Loch Ness, which they do, there are two photos they refer to. The first photo was reportedly taken in November of 1933, and I honestly don't know how to describe it. We'll put it on all our social medias, and you can tell me what you see. Bloggers with more time on my hands than I have have picked it apart. One outlined what he claims to be the image we're supposed to see in the photo. To me, it's a stretch. But then again, like I always say, what the hell do I know? If I didn't know what it was supposed to be a picture of, I wouldn't even know it was of water. But once I know it's a picture of something in the water, I don't know if I'm supposed to focus on the light parts or the dark parts. 
I have no idea what the scale of this thing is supposed to be. I'm sure a water animal expert can make something of it, and plenty have. Then again, an alien expert could also make something of it. As it is, people have tried to claim the photo is of a dog with a stick in its mouth, or at the very least that it's double exposed over a picture of a dog with a stick in its mouth, which I absolutely do not see. Apparently, photo experts have examined the negative and didn't find any tampering or double exposure. And, of course, the negative, it seems, has been lost to time. Someone probably threw it out because that's what people seem to do with important historical evidence. The other, arguably more famous photo is the one commonly called the surgeon's photo, though the man who took it was a gynecologist named Robert Wilson, so I don't know where they got surgeon. I suppose the gynecologist picture might have been a tad too suggestive, though it might have sold a lot of papers. Anyway... In 1934, the gynecologist Wilson was driving by Loch Ness when his companion shouted, My God, there's the monster! Then I guess the monster just stayed exactly where it was while Wilson got out his camera, set it up, and snapped the shot. This is the photo we've all seen when we've Googled Loch Ness Monster. It's a long, thin neck with a tiny head, with the suggestion of a body peeking up out of the water behind. In other words a brontosaurus in the water. And, of course, the photo has been hotly debated for decades. Again, there's nothing else in the photo to show scale, so there's really no way of knowing what or even where this thing is. In 1994, the mystery was finally solved when two people from the Loch Ness and Moorer Project somehow figured out that the whole thing was cooked up by none other than Marmaduke Wetherill. This fucking guy. Good old Marmy was so pissed at having been humiliated by the whole hippo ashtray as Loch Ness monster tracks that he vowed revenge, see? He apparently told his son, we'll give them their monster. I love the image of this guy being like, you want a monster? I'll show you a monster. Oh shit, now I have to come up with a monster. And that's exactly what he did. He had someone build a model out of a toy submarine and plastic and wood. It took him eight days, which is some serious determination, considering he probably could have just used a literal dinosaur toy and no one would have been the wiser. Old Dookie Boy approached Dr. Wilson, who for some reason agreed to be in on the hoax. Eventually, the guy who made the toy model of Nessie confessed. But that wasn't enough to satisfy Neil Clark, curator of paleontology at the Hunterian Museum in Glasgow, who in 2006 suggested that the famous surgeon's photo is actually of an escaped circus elephant swimming in Loch Ness. I mean, okay. It's like, dude, who do you think you are spouting whatever random opinion you have? A podcaster? To this day, there have been over a thousand reported sightings of Nessie. There's a live cam feed, which, as far as I know, hasn't caught any footage yet. In 2014, a photographer set up a camera on the shore of a lake about 330 miles south of Loch Ness to take time-lapse photos of the foliage across the lake. When she downloaded the photos later, she discovered she'd taken a photo of what definitely looks like a brontosaurus in the water. 
no one has been able to debunk her photo. And in 2016, a man took a picture of what some people argue is Nessie in Loch Ness. To me, it looks like three seals, which begs the question, what the hell are seals doing in Loch Ness? And why don't we see seals there more often? The Loch Ness Monster mystery has become a multi-million dollar industry for Scotland and Inverness. Anywhere you go in Scotland, you can buy a Nessie keychain, bottle opener, or stuffy. Which is especially weird when you remember that the earliest story of Nessie was about her killing a little kid. Sweet dreams, here's a murderous, bloodthirsty monster to snuggle with. Sleep tight! But the water monsters I'm going to tell you about next... Trust me, kids, even good old St. Columba wouldn't be able to save you from these. These creatures from the deep just might blow you away. In the southern part of Siberia, near the Mongolian border, lies the oldest and deepest lake in the world, Lake Baikal. It is over 5,000 feet deep and 25 million years old. 25 million years old. That's old, friends. Lake Baikal holds up to 20% of our planet's non-frozen fresh water. For reference, the Great Lakes are only 3,000 years old, and all five of them together hold about 20% of the planet's water. Okay? But considering what may be living in it, you might want to think twice before going for a dip in Lake Baikal. For decades, locals, scientists, and Russian military have reported lots of strange activity in and around Lake Baikal. Weird, inexplicable lights, bizarre shapes in the water, radar blips of unknown origin, whole ships being swallowed up by the water with barely a trace they ever existed, and, of course, UFOs. In 1982, during a naval diving exercise, dozens of feet below the surface of Lake Baikal, some divers came upon a small group of what must at first glance have looked like humans swimming in the depths. The naval divers quickly noticed, however, that the swimmers didn't seem to be wearing any scuba equipment. They were more than 160 feet deep in the water. And for those of you like me who have no idea how things work, experienced divers don't go more than 40 feet deep without scuba gear. The swimmers were, however, wearing what appeared to be tight-fitting silvery suits and sphere-like helmets. It was then that the naval divers noticed these mysterious underwater visitors were nearly 10 feet tall. Before anyone knew what was happening, these 10-feet-tall humanoids wearing no scuba gear swam even deeper into the icy waters, disappearing into the murkiness below. Naturally, of course, the whole group was like, um, what? The Navy guy in charge of this group reported the strange encounter to Lieutenant Colonel Gennady Zverev, who conducted periodic training of reconnaissance divers, or frogmen, from the Turkestan and Central Asian military regions. Colonel Zverev was also like, um, what? So he sent seven highly trained divers to Lake Baikal to capture one of the creatures. 
So there, at Lake Baikal, the naval divers descended deeper and deeper into the increasingly frigid water, and apparently got lucky and encountered the same mysterious creature on their first try. One of them tried to throw a weighted net over one of the creatures. Here, the diver's luck ran out. Some kind of invisible force, probably a high-powered sonar wave, shot the seven divers back. No one knows if it came from the humanoid creatures themselves or from some equipment that was hidden deeper in the dark waters. Whatever it was, it blasted the divers with such force and speed that according to local witnesses, they were catapulted more than 30 feet into the air before splashing back down into the lake, at which point one of them turned to the other and said, we're going to need a bigger net. That was a Jaws reference. Also, I'm kidding. I'm pretty sure none of them could say anything at this point. Now, because of my aforementioned terror of the water, I myself have never had to surface from the great depths of any body of water, let alone been thrown from the depths into the air. And again, I will say my terror is well-placed because apparently the human body is not meant for such activities. If you surface too quickly from deep water, you can get the bends, which is not only a pretty good Radiohead album, but it's a pretty awful disease where nitrogen leaks out of your blood into your body and wreaks havoc and can kill you. Listen, kids, if the scary underwater monsters don't get you, the air pressure will. Just stay on land, please. All seven naval divers got the bends, which, by the way, is excruciatingly painful. The only remedy for the divers was to be immediately put in decompression chambers. Unfortunately, all but one of the local naval-based decompression chambers were out of service. Each chamber was designed to hold no more than two people at once. So, there's seven men, probably all writhing in indescribable pain, and one working decompression chamber to help them. Someone decided they could squeeze up to four men in at once, but no more, which meant the other three would be doomed. Let's just pause for a moment to imagine that discussion. Okay, so I have good news and bad news. Did they draw straws? Rock, paper, scissors? Like, how do you decide who lives and who, at best, continues suffering unbearable pain or, at worst, dies? And before you accuse me of making light of an awful situation, let me just say, where have you been? This is how I cope with things that are too awful to process. It's okay. However they got to their decision, three naval officers died, including the lead diver on the mission, and the remaining four men were permanently injured. In response, the Russian military supposedly circulated a classified For Your Eyes Only, which is not only a terrible James Bond movie, but also an intra-office document warning its personnel about the aerial lakes and the possibility of these or other creatures living in them in order to avoid any more encounters. Can you imagine the guy who had to type up this memo? 
Like he joined the military for patriotism and glory, but somehow ended up on desk duty typing up documents about all the cool stuff he'll never get to do. And he's like, aliens? In lakes? Aw, man, are you kidding me? And I have to say, this is kind of a great response. I feel like just as easily they could have decided to send bombs into the lake and blown whatever it was in there out. That's probably what we would have done if this had happened in Lake Michigan or anywhere in the U.S., TBH. Basically, the Russians were like, uh, you know what? Between the weird lights, UFOs, and now humanoid sea creatures with some kind of lethal sonar technology, let's just go ahead and be cautious in these lakes, okay? According to Russia Today, which, as far as I can tell, is the Russian equivalent of Fox News, in 2009, the Russian Navy declassified a bunch of documents regarding encounters with UFOs or unidentified underwater objects. It's unclear if the 1982 incident with these seven divers is included in those documents. I don't think it is. And, of course, without official documentation... It could be just another unverifiable, made-up, strange encounter with the unknown. As far as I can tell, no one has ever come forward to be like, one of the naval divers who died was my husband, father, brother, son. Call me overly litigious, but if my loved one died as a result of military negligence, I would, I don't know, sue? Then again, maybe the Russian military paid the victim's families off preemptively. Like, hey, sorry, almost all our decompression chambers were out of order when we sent your loved one 160 feet into the water where they were trying to capture an alien. Hey, here's some money. Please never speak of this again. But Vladimir Ajaja, a Russian UFO researcher and former Russian naval officer, doesn't discount the possibility that there are underwater bases for extraterrestrial beings. That's actually a pretty commonly held theory in the UFO world. If a former naval officer thinks it's possible that aliens are living among us with secret underwater bases, I don't know. It seems like that shit might really be possible. Also, ancient petroglyphs near Lake Baikal appear to show human-type figures wearing what could be described as helmets. Helmets similar to the ones described by the naval divers who encountered the beings in Lake Baikal. Russian historian Alexei Tivanenko claims to have drawings of hundreds of these ancient petroglyphs, which he believes depicts visits from aliens thousands of years ago. And remember, Lake Baikal is 25 million years old. We discover new species all the time. Who's to say there isn't a really old species of our cousins who adapted to living deep underwater? Or that we've adapted to live on land? The truth is, we really don't know. 25 million years is a lot of time for a species to evolve. Hell, look at us. It took us less than 200,000 years to split the atom and create a weapon that could literally wipe our entire species off the planet. Who's to say there's not some other human-like species that created an underwater sonar wave blaster thingy? Honestly, if it is some kind of Earth-based being that just wants to be left alone and will sonar us out of the water if we get too close, that's fine with me. They can have the murky abyss of Lake Baikal. Again, I think the Russian military was right to be like, let's just mind our P's and Q's and let the nice sea monkeys be. 
But if they are aliens, what are they doing down there? Like, you're going to move into the nearby woods all hidden-like and then come at me with a shotgun if I happen to stumble upon your secret woods hideout? What the fuck are you doing in there? And why my woods? What's in there you need so bad? How am I supposed to not at least wonder about it? At the end of the day, I think the major takeaway here is that nothing good ever happens in the water. Whether it's some elusive prehistoric dinosaur who may or may not try to eat people, or some kind of distant aquatic cousin who clearly doesn't want us around, or literal aliens from another planet, who knows what all lurks beneath? Think about that next time you're lazing in an inner tube with a cold beer in your hand, floating peacefully along the pristine surface of your favorite swimming hole. Better hope the creatures whose home you're floating on don't suddenly decide they'd rather not have visitors that day. I'd be the person on dry land who would be sad to see you go, but would not be able to resist calling out, I mean, I told you so. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, The Simulation Theory. The chances that you and I are just avatars in someone else's video game are better than you think. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for anything we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Thank you.